Thank you, Scott. Good morning. It's my delight to introduce our guest preacher this morning as we welcome back Leanne Ketchum. Uh, Leanne was with us at the very beginning of the sabbatical, and now she is uh, landing the plane, as it, as it is, because Pastor Stacy will be back with us in worship next Sunday. Uh, for those of you who may not have been with us last time, Leanne is my niece, and she's married to my nephew, Andrew, uh, and who grew up with my daughters, uh, and they're here, Andrew's here with their daughter, Chloe, their baby daughter, Chloe. Uh, Leanne is ordained in the Wesleyan Church. She has served in pastoral roles in Colorado, New Jersey, and Toronto. She has an undergraduate degree from Indiana Wesleyan, a Master's of Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary, and she's currently working on her dissertation, or PhD, at Emmanuel College at the University of Toronto, studying homiletics. So we're blessed to have her back with us this morning. Would you welcome Leanne Ketchum? Well, good morning. Let me first begin with words of gratitude. Thank you for the warm welcome. It is wonderful to be back with you today, to share God's word together, to listen for the ways that God is calling us to live as Christ's people in the world. The Christian life is a lot less like the movie Castaway, where there's a man alone on an island with only a volleyball for companionship. And it's a lot more like a dinner party, where uh, without a community of faces around us, whether in person or virtually connected, without others around the table, it ceases to be a party in any form. We are meant to do this together, and it is a joy to do so. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we give you thanks for your word, and we pray that we might hear your Holy Spirit speak to us. Help us set aside the distractions and the burdens of our hearts and know that they are in safekeeping in your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we wrap up the series that you have been doing on Colossians. And it's been going on for several weeks, so I should start by saying I make no promises to wrap up all of the loose threads that may or may not have been happening the last several weeks. If you miss anything, you should go back and watch one of the sermons that you missed. They are online on the website or on the podcast app. So Paul writes to the church in Colossae as a spiritual leader, as a brother in the faith, but also as a stranger. He has never met them. He's only received news of them through Epaphras, the missionary who was converted during Paul's missionary journeys. And then Epaphras went to Colossae, proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ, and the community of believers, the church, came to be there. But it's a complicated context for this church. The city of Colossae, which is in present-day Turkey, uh, had been a leading city in centuries prior. It had a booming wool industry, and this allowed for prosperity to grow within the city. They were on a major trade route, which allowed lots of uh, people, a diverse population, to come and uh, exist in Colossae. So these were sort of their, their golden years, if you will. But by the time of Paul's writing to them, their time in the sun, their golden years, had turned a bit cloudy. They were, at this point, just a second-rate market town. 
Where once there were flourishing businesses that were well-kept and bustling, uh, there were only ghosts of what once was. They used to be at the center of trade, and now they were far outstripped in prominence by other cities. You've probably seen cities like this before. You've probably driven through them. At one time, factories or mills or manufacturing provided a vast majority of the jobs. And maybe they were known as a steel town, a General Motors town, a, a mill town, um, or a mining town. But then things over time changed. And we might imagine, and maybe you could argue, uh, that a general mood uh, in Colossae would be nostalgia for the way that things once were. And nostalgia might only describe it on a good day. And on a bad day, the general mood might just be bitterness. Nostalgia for the past, for what once was, for who they were at this other time, for the former reputation and power that they had held. And maybe bitterness for all the problems left behind without any of the benefits that they once had. So one of the problems that Colossae is facing is a pluralistic society. And by this, I mean that Colossae had a variety of religions that were existing all within the same city. That cosmopolitan city where people from diverse places had all gathered together resulted in some tension. Different groups negotiating differing beliefs and religious elements met and mingled. We hear this in the letter in somewhat of an indirect way. Paul is writing to them because of a heresy, a false teaching. It's threatening to engulf this fledgling Colossian church. And Paul is writing to encourage them to stand strong in the faith, to dig deeper roots. And we don't know exactly what the heresy is. We can infer only the shape of it sort of secondhand from Paul. But within Colossae, there are these Hellenistic cults where there's a multitude of gods, and Jesus is just one option amongst many. And then there are also these mystical elements at hand, where the world is a hierarchy. God is at the top, then there are angels, and then there's humans, and then everything else. And so in order to get to God, they would have to worship the angels in order to get to God. So there's sort of a hierarchy going on. And then also in the mix of this religious uh, melting pot is a legalistic following of the Jewish law, where in order to be seen as truly a person of the faith, you had to follow all the outward identity markers, things like circumcision, uh, things like what you ate and what not to eat, who you ate with, uh, how you worshipped and with whom, these necessary outward identity markers. But all of that is to say... It is a complex time for the church in Colossae. They stand on a precipice. They're embedded in a pluralistic culture. And they're trying to negotiate a Christian life under pressure with others who believe differently. And they're doing all of this at a time when the cultural mood is a sort of nostalgia. And they're in a moment of insignificance compared to what they once were. Where there once was success and prosperity and power, now there is only memory. And so what kind of life, what kind of Christian life is God calling them to in a context of difference and insignificance? And I have to ask the question, is that 
unlike the question that God might be asking us today. A couple of weeks ago, I read an article about a woman in uh, Ottawa, Ontario, in Canada, who was looking to buy a home. The housing market in Canada is bananas, just like the housing market in the States. And she had been looking for a very long time. She found a listing for a historic church that was built in 1926, and it was for sale. 2,500 square feet, had 50-foot ceilings, complete with a pipe organ. And she purchased it for a steal of a deal at (laughs) $350,000. But she planned to renovate it turn it into her dream home. Now, Christian scholars and historians and philosophers remark about how the world has changed, how at one time Christianity was at the center of everything. It would have been unbelievable to not believe in God. Whereas now, it's almost unbelievable if you do. At one time, Christians held cultural power and dominance at the center of everything, whereas now we can be one perspective among many. We may watch the news or interact with people and feel a sort of mental whiplash as the world is different. And it's a world where our churches that at one time thrived are now rezoned as residential properties becoming dream homes. A sense of identity and purpose for the church can be a relic of the past. Now, the church historically has negotiated their role in culture in a variety of ways. Uh, Sometimes we've tried to reinvent ourselves as a sort of safe harbor, a Christian enclave. We build large facilities that can provide every sort of thing under the sun so our people can sort of shelter away and still have their needs met. A sort of Christian subculture or separate environment. But arguably, we haven't always negotiated our relationship with culture very well. Christians at times have retreated from the world, willing to just wash their hands of all of it. And this goes back even to the early centuries of the church, where certain monks would go out into the desert separate from everyone else, trying to get away and be done with the world. It's an age-old struggle for the church. So if you have ever felt like you didn't know how to negotiate being a Christian in relationship to a broader culture, Know that you are not alone. So the question hits us again. As the church is viewed with less and less significance in the broader culture, and in a pluralistic society of differing religious beliefs, what kind of life is God calling us to? Now the sermon series is titled, Christ, the Center of All Things. The adequacy of Christ as God, the sufficiency of Jesus in contrast to all other philosophies, the enoughness of Jesus. And there's a sort of logical progression, a natural movement in Paul's thought here, and I hope you will humor me with the fastest overview of Colossians ever, maybe not ever, but today. (laughs) So Paul begins in Colossians 1 with who Christ is. He is the firstborn of all creation, the image of the invisible God. He is before all things, and he holds the universe together. God was pleased through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. And as Pastor Kurt said in his sermon, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known what God is like, but we do now. And so out of who Christ is, we move to what Christ has done, the supremacy of Christ in Colossians 2. God has made us who were dead in our trespasses, not sick. Sin doesn't make us sick. Sin makes us dead. And God has made us alive together in Christ, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. He has set it aside, nailing it to the cross. And because of this, because of what Christ has done, we are rooted, founded, sourced, centered in Christ. So, from who Christ is and what Christ has done is then who Christ makes us to be. Our identity in Christ. Our new identity is found in Christ who is all and in all. We're to put off the old self and put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We're to let Christ rule in our hearts, to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, and whatever we do, to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then, Paul moves to how this identity changes how we live. How because of Christ, we, the church, Christians, the body of Christ, the little examples of Jesus are to live in the world, not as possessors of power or prestige or righteous pride, but rather how we are to live in Christ. And in Christ, the Christians of Colossae are empowered as witnesses. Paul says they are to devote themselves to prayer. They are to be watchful, thankful. They are to pray for the missionaries like Paul to be given an opportunity to share the gospel. They are to be wise in the way they act towards outsiders. Making the most of every opportunity for witness. They are to let their conversations always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that they know how to answer everyone. So what does it mean to be Christ's witnesses in the world? Well, in short, it means to live out of the center of Christ. Now, this is a little bit different. There's a subtle shift happening. On the one hand, when we think of this, we might think of, here's our whole life. Here's all of the things in it. We have our work, our family, our friends, all the things that we do, our passions, our hopes and dreams. And at the center of our whole life is Jesus. So that's one way that we may have thought about this before. But this is actually a shift that Paul is making. Instead, there is Christ. There is all of who Christ is, all of what Christ has done. And it is less that we have our lives and that the center is Jesus, and more that Christ has his life, and we are at the center of his life. His ministry, his mission in the world, his authority over all things, his forgiveness, his healing and sanctification of all, and at the center of him is us, and that is where we dwell. So to understand our call as God's witnesses and to receive our empowerment as God's witnesses from Christ and the Holy Spirit, whom God sends, is to dwell in Christ 
who is before all things and in whom all things hold together. It's to be conscious and awakened to the way that God has reconciled us to God's self and so that we can be agents of God's reconciliation, people of peace, forgiveness, solidarity, advocacy in the world because we are dwelling in Christ and we live out of him. It means to be caught up in what God is doing in the world. What God is doing to bring all of creation to redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. And it means that we do not draw back from the world, afraid that whatever might enter us will contaminate us or infect us or corrupt us. But to be Christ's witnesses in the world is to be carried by Christ into the very place and to the very people that God so desperately loves, the world, such that we might be testimonies of who God is and God's love and grace and forgiveness. To be witnesses are to be people who dwell in Christ. And because they dwell in Christ, what do they do? They pray. They watch. They wait for an opening to share. They are thankful. They pray for soft hearts and open ears. And when it opens, they're ready to give that kind word, not a bashing of the Bible or an attempt to grab power again. Witnesses are wise. They know the power that words have to build up and to destroy. And they know the time that it takes to earn trust and to gain a welcome to speak into someone's life. They know when to shut their mouths and when the witness of a meal or a hug or a listening ear can go a lot farther. God empowers us to be God's witnesses in the world. And it's not just any kind of witness. It's a winsome witness, an attractive witness, a beautiful, wonderful, loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle, and self-controlled witness. We are not unbelieving when we say that it's complicated to live as God's witnesses in the world today. That's just being honest. But we are unbelieving if we draw back from the world and decide that it's too complicated, so we will withdraw. I came across some beautiful stories this week of churches that are struggling and faithfully, prayerfully discerning what it means to live as God's witnesses today in their neighborhoods. Now, many of these churches, they remember prior glory days when their churches were full and their nurseries were packed. They remember when their neighborhoods were healthy and new. And yet, they stubbornly refuse to believe in the trap of nostalgia or bitterness. They know who Christ is. They know what God has done. And they know that they are Christ. So they seek God for what it means to witness in their neighborhoods, in their homes, in their workplaces, in their lives, in 2021, in the midst of a pandemic. Take, for instance, 
Coppin Memorial African Methodist Episcopal Church in Southside Chicago. Their neighborhood is run down and unsafe. And although they have no youth formally in their, worshiping in their church, they see youth all over in their neighborhood and they claim them as their youth. So they began to build a relationship with these young people and to empower them and listen to what they needed in the neighborhood. Uh, local teens began to rub shoulders with the saints of the church. They began to be mentored by them, prayed for by them, loved on by them. And the youth shared how they used to see their brothers and sisters couldn't and wouldn't come outside to play because it was unsafe. So together, these young people in this church started to imagine what God might be doing. They launched these events, and these are led by the youth to do neighborhood cleanup, to sweep up broken glass. And there's a sense that broken glass then is the beginning of healing, not only for this neighborhood, but also for the young people and their relationship with the church. No place is too far gone for redemption, they said. Or take First Presbyterian Church of Middletown, Ohio, a city long past its prime, living in the shadow of industrialization. They were prayerful and watchful. They heard that there was no space for teens in the area to come together and gather, and so they launched a gardening initiative because they said, hey, we're in the middle of a pandemic. People can only be outside safely. What's the way we can do that? We'll have a community garden. God's witnesses in the world. Dean Nelson is an author, and he's, he was meeting with a small group, and he was complaining about all of the things that keep him from writing. He was a professor, he said, and his classes he had too many students. His classes are spread out across too many days. He doesn't have blocks of time to write. His workload, too much. His family life has small children. It's too chaotic. Uh, while Philip Yancey has a cabin in the mountains to write, or his mentor has a writing shed on the back of their beautiful property, poor Dean Nelson has only a desk in a crowded bedroom where his children and wife can come and interrupt him all the time. Now one of the people is listening to him in this group and asks a couple of questions and then says, Dean, are you a writer or are you becoming a writer. Dean thought about it. He had published some things. He, he writes. He said, I am a writer. So his friend paused and looked at him and said, then you should act like it. Real writers write. We are God's witnesses. We are Christians. Are we Christians? Are we becoming Christians? If we are Christians, let us act like it. Let us be God's winsome witnesses in the world for such a time as this. We are the church. We are Christ. Christ has his life, his ministry, his mission in the world, his authority over all things, his forgiveness and healing and sanctification. And at the center of him, is us. Are we wanting to be Christians or are we Christians? 
then we need to act like them. Let's pray. Gracious God, out of your goodness and faithfulness, you center us. You root us. You found us in you. And God, you empower us to be your witnesses in the world. This isn't a second-rate plan or an accident. This is your plan. This is what you have called us to be, to be your witnesses in the world. God, we pray that you would teach us to pray. Teach us to be watchful and thankful. Teach us to wait for an opening to share the good news of Jesus. God, we pray that you would make us wise in the way that we act towards outsiders, helping us make the most of every opportunity. And especially in a time when words carry so much, may your Holy Spirit empower us to always be full of grace in our conversation. Help us season our speech with salt so that we might know how to answer everyone. God, use us to be a beautiful witness of your love, your forgiveness, your welcome in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.